Welcome to Community Values, a podcast dedicated to exploring the values of vibrant, equitable places. I'm your host, Tracy Donato of consulting firm Anthem LLC, and today we are speaking with Dr. Sarah Tabor, crop scientist and expert in the field of food systems and food safety, to discuss the effects of fundamentalism on ag culture and farming. Thanks for joining. I'm Sarah Tabor. I am a veterinarian for crops. People keep thinking I'm, prof- I'm a professor. I have not worked at a university like since I graduated, really. Um, <laughs> there's actual like things that we do in real life when we're crop veterinarians, like we take care of plants. That's our thing. Um, so, <laughs> so I've been doing that and then have been taking the last year or so off to write a book. And then also because it's a pandemic and that just kind of was forced. Um, gigs are scarce. Um, so yeah, I started like rage tweeting about the stuff I was seeing uh, on the job because <laughs> it was either that or like literally just kind of like curl up into a ball and die. So we did that. Um, it turned out that that resonated with a lot of people. There's a lot of discourse about how like rural America is the real America. And I'm like, there is no rural urban divide. It's fake. It's all run by the same capitalism. <laughs> right. Right. So, and there's no real or fake America. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just started like, you know, talking about my experiences and the stuff I'd seen and like what's really going on. Um, you, you kind of got into this and we should, we should talk about it as I grew up Mormon and, you know, had to kind of extricate myself from that situation later on. And uh, that wound up really influencing a lot of how I see things because once you kind of like, you know, and like, I don't want to single out Mormonism here because I think a lot of, a lot of fundamentalism is all the same, right? Right. That's just the one that I was born into, right? Um, And once you have to punch your way out of one like really conservative kind of fundamentalist way of thinking, you have the tools to do it again and again, and you kind of see those same patterns of thinking showing up all over the place, uh, particularly in like anything that's like for and by white people, like agriculture and white nationalist politics. (laughs) So... How was that? Yeah, well, that is exciting. I do want to hear a little <laughs> bit. Of, no, it is. I'm so excited because I feel like these conversations don't happen as often as they should. Even when we're all talking about, hey, it's very clear that there's um, systemic patriarchy and systemic white supremacy and systemic racism. Like, we're still talking about that in very broad terms, right? Mm-hmm. And what you've been able to do is hone that down and distill it into a place that we haven't looked for it before, right? Which is agriculture. Yeah. I mean, there's a perception thing, right? Where everybody thinks of agriculture, like America's heartland, like the Mm -hmm. marketing around agriculture is It's all marketing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They have, you know, the Farm Bureau and a lot of other marketing organs basically to market themselves and their very existence, right? Um, and it's kind of funny because you'll see some people getting really dismayed about like, did you know these farmers are making more money from their YouTube channel than from farming? And I'm like, it's... It's always been like that. The YouTube part is new, but like right. the image has always been worth more than the reality. That's not right. surprising at all. Right. Yeah. No. And a lot of your content is centered. Like, I love that you use the term rage tweeting because I think that's <laughs> what we're all doing right now. Right. Mm-hmm. And I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that Sarah and I are talking right now the day after a mm-hmm. coup. Mm-hmm. Um, of the United States government. So the day after white supremacists terrorized and invaded the Capitol mm-hmm. building in Washington, D.C. So, um, so we're all it's all very fresh. Yeah, so we're feeling great. <laughs> we're feeling fresh. <laughs> we're feeling spicy and we're feeling like we told you <laughs> they were like We're this. feeling like racing our motherfucking fists and rage tweeting, which we have been doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, but no, I think... <laughs> 
I think it's appropriate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And particularly in when we talk about agriculture, um, there's this, I, I can't get past it. I'm trying to make some connections here. You talk about, (laughs) right, the experience of coming out of a fundamentalist background, right? Like coming out of Mormonism and how that has shaped the work that you do. Because once you punch your way out once, you're ready to do it again. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've shared that I also come from, you know, a Southern Baptist background, though I'm Jewish now. Um, But it's it's that same sort of thing where we come with this, right? (laughs) Everyone has a journey. Yeah. yeah, like in this, like, that's kind of like a big millennial experience that's kind of happening under the table is there are so many kids basically raised under, you know, the Reagan revolution. And yeah. it was like a whole new level of intensity for like right wing Christian, like indoctrination of the next generation. Um, like we were really like raised, I think, to kind of like carry the Reagan revolution and like just the Christian majority and all that stuff to the next generation. It was supposed to be like, you know we did the first phase, like our parents won it and now we're supposed to carry it on. And they were like, no, this is abusive shit. (laughs) Yeah. This is actually called brainwashing and it's terrible. Yeah. That's like a huge millennial experience. Again, that's kind of happening under the table. And it's really interesting that we have, um, Particularly, it seems like in the older generation, we have a lot of folks who are like, no, 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 the way to deal with all these white nationalists is like, we have to appeal to them, we have to explain to them why we have better policies and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you do realize that you're talking about charming people who threw their own children out on the street, right? Like, if you're gay, you're out of this family. Um, You know, if you don't believe in the same fundamentalism we do, you're out of this family. These people don't give a fuck about their own family. You will never, ever get them to care about you. Okay? You should not try. (laughs) It is a waste of time. It's like that George Carlin, that George Carlin bit where he talks about, like, no, they literally do not care about you. Specifically, Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. None of these people care about you, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's... It's not other, like, this is kind of a weird thing to say, but like something that was a really fundamental part of me getting out of that community was like realizing that nobody cared about me, you know, um, like <laughs> just truly nobody cared. Um, like respectability was way more important to my own parents than like actually maintaining their family relationships, which is just a weird thing to watch happen in a church whose main headline is family, right? Um, Well, and the way that family is structured and forgive my understanding if it's off, my wife, as we've talked about, is an ex-Mormon. But the way she explained it to me was the your salvation is so tied to others that it Mm -hmm. becomes a really sick codependency yeah no right where there's shame associated with almost every action that you take because Mm -hmm. it's not you're not only affecting your own salvation but that Mm -hmm. of everyone around you that you love yeah Yeah, and it's basically just like there's no boundaries right there's um and that was kind of a a thing that i had to learn and kind of like seek out information on and teach myself was how to have boundaries because that was not a thing uh the concept of of self-care was not a thing because sure um it's funny because we talk about like these are tactics the right wingers use. I don't know that anybody ever sat down and was like twirling their mustache, like, now if we can just convince them that self care right. is not a thing, then they will always be sad and like overworked. They'll be and so dis- tired and, and overwhelmed that they can't rise up. Yeah, no. Yeah. I don't like, think, I don't think anybody way. ever. Yeah, like it's it's kind of like the way I tell people is like, it's like middle school, right? Um, there's all this like backstabbing that happens in middle school. And it's not because anybody ever sat down and thought like, yes, this is going to increase my social status. And having more social status matters because like nobody, 
ever right. sits down and pencils that out. There's just like, we kind of, humans have a lot of instincts and, <laughs> and some of them are for backstabbing and, and social status. And we don't really, we don't really question them all the time. And right. we kind of have an instinct on how to execute those things. Like we're social animals. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, I kind of look at it more like being belonging to a group is so important for human survival that we're willing to do a lot of things to, to make sure that we stay in it, including sure. not being nice to others. Um, even though that's to the detriment of the whole group, like that is, that is a mode that we have. It's, we're not doomed. We're not stuck in it, but that is a mode that we have. Um, and so again, like, I feel like when you talk about systematic bad behavior, people kind of get this impression that it's planned and it's not um, like right. if people thought or even shit that through. it's conscious, right? Like on yeah. some level, I think, like you said, a lot of this is just acting from a place of instinct without interrogating those instincts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, yeah, that was, that was another thing that I had to do was like, okay, like I have this instinct or this feeling or this urge or whatever, but like, is that coming from like, that's actually a good idea or is that coming from like, my innate nature or is that because I've been trained to think this way? Right. Um, like there, there was just like a whole lot of that. And it's like, like when I tell you, like I was not a good person, like <laughs> white nationalist cults do not raise good people. Um, um, <laughs> and like a big part of why, like I stayed in it for so long, I finally left at 30. Right. And the reason I stayed in it for so oh, long, you were a, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah I, I was right. close. Right. Cause once you, once you have a couple of kids, you're locked in for life. Like oh, you really can't stuck. get out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so the reason I stayed in so long was like my family had a lot of domestic violence, like a lot of domestic violence. Um, and so church was kind of like the chill place where that stuff wasn't happening because my parents oh, had to pretend sure. to be nice at church. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. And I was like, this place is the shit. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's safe. It's safe for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which yeah. is like understandable for a child, right? And of then course. like, and I kind of started to see that things were not great, you know, around like, you know, early 20s. Um, like you get out into the world and you're, you know, you just see other people do other things and you're like, Oh, that's, that's not so bad. And, um, I kind of started to see the ways in which the domestic violence at home was actually aided and abetted by the church. Right. And that was kind of a big turning point was like, this is not a refuge for this. This is where it all came from. Right. Um, and then I spent several more years, like trying to change it from the inside. That's why I left. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, was I spent several years being Which like, is this is Which is another natural tendency, right? Because mm-hmm. you think like, oh, I can salvage the good in this thing. Mm-hmm. This yeah. thing has given me some good, mm-hmm. has given me some good. Period. Mm-hmm. That's the end of that sentence. So like, yeah. mm-hmm. how do we preserve that? Yeah, right? when, when you yeah. grow up in a domestic violence situation, like all the good that you have in your life comes from that thing, right? And it's, it's not yeah. 100% bad. Anytime people come together, there are going to be genuine connections and like genuine like help and aid and assistance and all that stuff. Like, um. And that's part of what keeps people in so long is like, that's where all their human connection is. And so it's like, yeah, it's like quitting alcoholism or like, you know, just quitting substance abuse. Like people who have done that, you know, they'll say like, you have to make whole new friends because, you know, like that's your common thing was the substance. And if you don't have that in common, you have to scrap your entire life and start over. It's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. And I was really fortunate to have a husband who was supportive because without that, it's like, yeah, you're, you're, you're stuck. Um, so he and I both spent several years, like kind of trying to fix it from the side. Cause like, we knew these people, we kind of like, we knew that they, you know, uh, okay, I'll, give, I'll tell you a story. So there's this one lady I knew about my age at the time. Um, and she was like, so frustrated cause there, this is around the time, like the anti-trans bathroom bills were going around. Right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, 
because this is in Florida. And she's like so frustrated because she's like, I was trying to like, when I was voting, I was trying to find the anti-trans bathroom bill one and I couldn't find it on the ballot anywhere. And I'm like, yeah, you stupid bitch. That's because... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not actually that it's it's just about like you can't have any civil rights laws unless they're at the state level because right. the GOP controls the state legislature but I say you stupid bitch with love because you know <laughs> yeah like this was You're somebody like, that I knew and like struggled with her parenting. And so like, we kind of helped her through a lot of her parenting stuff. Like there was a genuine connection, but you're just like a oh, lady. Um, like we know you're on some level just like, no. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of something I want to emphasize is like, people talk so much about like, you have to like hold people's head and persuade them through change. You can do that sometimes when you already have that deep personal relationship. If you don't, don't well, fucking bother. Anyway. It's a waste of time. <laughs> And the Jewish proverb, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but I'm going to do my best. But it, it, it basically says, when you know you will be heard, you have a moral imperative to speak. When you know you won't be heard, you have a moral imperative to stay silent. Mm-hmm. In other like, words, yeah, don't waste your voice. Yeah. Like right? spend your time doing something that's actually going to make some noise, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and like those years that I spent like on the inside, trying to fix it from the inside, like I kind of came to realize, I'm like, oh, this is how they keep you too busy to actually like do anything. Um, is you would like exhaust yourself. Ooh. Yeah. You exhaust yourself, Ooh. like trying to persuade and like trying to fix stuff that doesn't want to be fixed. That's how I wasted years of my life trying to fix the shit from the inside. Um, I feel like I was like that with corporate America. Yeah. Like, like oh, we all have that face. It's fine. Force for good and capitalism, which uh-huh. is not a thing. There is no force for good. In it, right. <laughs> like in this, yeah. that's like not a thing uh-huh. when you're working for like an, an, an international global publicly traded organization, because it gets back again to that quote, respectability politics of mm-hmm. like what happens behind closed doors. It's very different than what's um, given to shareholders as an example mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Right. It's like, well, yeah. And then like, I had some like, I don't want to say heart to hearts, but like some real blunt conversations with my parents. And I was like, listen, um, you guys make bad choices. You guys make bad decisions. Um, Again, laughing only in solidarity. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, you spent your whole lives dedicating like your life to this institution that says families and you're, you're bad parents. The way they respond to that discussion was no, but we don't understand how to do the right thing. We need you to help us do the right thing. And I was like, I'm not your parent. You need to do the work, right? Because I'd already been through that with the LDS church. I had already like heard that argument. I'd already rejected that argument. And I'd already like kind of realized that adults have a responsibility to their own selves. And if you want to preserve your relationships, you do the work, right? Um, And it was, it was harsh. Okay. I'm not going to lie to you. Like this is, this is kind of like the reality of uh, really conservative institutions and communities is, um, there's no accountability. Like the lack of boundaries goes along with like, there's no accountability. Like you can't push people out of your life. You have to just let people keep abusing you over and over again. And we just have no way to talk about like, Hey, you have responsibilities to your children to like not abuse them. Um, And you shouldn't expect love. And (laughs) here's the definition of of abuse, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and here's, and let's call it what it is and let's accurately name it. Mm -hmm. I feel like that there's a lot of this, like, you know, pussyfooting, uh, that's mm-hmm. probably not the right word. <laughs> Tippy toe. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah. you know, and it's, I still have to like, as a Southern woman, I am mm-hmm. constantly having to be like, wait, where did that word come from? That's not feminist. <laughs> and I don't want to, you know, like <laughs> constantly yeah. interrogating even my own speech patterns. It's terrible, mm-hmm. but yeah, no, I mean, there's a, a real reluctance to 
name things accurately because mm-hmm. they're ugly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and as long as we can just like minimize it and all that stuff, then we can just be like, that's not happening here. And that was a big source of pushback actually that I got at church and then echoed identically in the agricultural community later. Yeah. So I started talking about my experiences in agriculture just like publicly on Twitter. Uh, like, here's this thing that I saw happen right in front of me. And people would be like, oh, well, you must have just had a bad experience in that one place. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I've definitely seen more of farm country than you have, bub. Like, I work all over the country. Like, I've been to just about every quadrant of the United States. Um, and, like, the, the funny thing about farm culture is we're kind of told that it is grassroots. Like, it's local. It's organic. Like, it grew up from just, like, family farmers kind of creating their own thing together. It's total, it's total uh, astroturf. So like the Farm Bureau, 4-H, and all of them, like these are all interrelated organizations and they train farm kids how farming works, how to think about themselves. Like they don't actually train them how, that much about how farming works. When I say how farming works, they mean how to think of yourself as a farmer, like what farming means, how to relate with other farmers, how to The form, ethos of being a farmer. Yeah. How to form closed ranks when other people are talking smack about farmers. Like that's a really big part of it. Um yeah, the farm community is complete astroturf. Like, it's funded by federal agencies and, like, federal lobbies and stuff like that. So, like, the Farm Bureau and USDA have, like, some really interesting interrelationships that I have not even really begun to pick apart yet. Because I work in produce where this is, like, less of a thing. Right. Um, but, like, grain, dairy, like, there's a reason that the USDA food pyramid, like, recommends dairy in the amount and meat in the amount sure. that it does. It's because, like, industry is a huge part of it. And every... Every government agency is subject to some regulatory capture, but there's like some really unique depth to it in it in the USDA. Um, so like 4-H started out as a branch of the, started out in the same movement as the Farm Bureau back in like the early 1900s. Um, started out as local things. Now it's USDA funded. So there's kind of like just this you know, total revolving door going on. Um, wow. Yeah, so like a lot of the, a lot of this indoctrination about how to think of yourself as a farmer who hates everybody is federally funded. Um. <laughs> That's so it's incredible yeah. to me the mirrors between this the sort of fundamentalism that we've talked about mm-hmm. and the culture of quote farming right like mm-hmm. the perception of farming because I think that goes back into perception versus reality what's true what's not how do we begin to parse that out and like farming is one of those areas that I. I honestly think you're one of the first people to publicly sort of pull back the curtain. Well, it's all just right? white nationalism, you know? Which like. makes people really, really angry. No, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, it makes people really angry. Like, how mm-hmm. dare you insult America's heartland in any way, mm-hmm. shape, or form? It's like insulting veterans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Farmers, you know? My dad's a veteran, so I don't give a fuck about that either, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. Good people are good people, but it's not because of, like, your your class, right? Um yeah, so like it's it's just all different fronts for white nationalism is really kind of what it comes down to. Uh, it's, it's so fascinating to me because Mormonism did start out as like just a dirt poor tenant farmer, like who was constantly like siblings constantly dying. He's like trying to find a way to make sense of all this and, and make a way through life, and then just turned into like the most racist white nationalist cult. It's like so sad. Um, I get to this yeah. point where I'm like, God damn it. Why do we always wind up there? You know, yeah. like when we start to interrogate ideas about mm-hmm. our country, our public policy, the institutions that we all work within or mm-hmm. try to dismantle, mm-hmm. why do we why do we always end up there? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it's it's really something, right? So that's kind of been what I'm working on going forward is like, okay, like things kind of always wind up going there. Like agriculture is definitely it's it's always been like that. Um 
like people over all over the world have been farming for a very very long time like we have archaeological info from like new guinea where people are cultivating taro like twenty eight thousand years ago people have been farming for a long time um it does that's that's not part of farming that's part of how we do farming right now right it's not obligatory like the racism does not need to be part of this um right. we, we've chosen to make it part of it so what does agriculture look like stripped of all that like what does farming just to make food for people look like because a lot of the way farming functions right now the way it's actually structured is not to make food it has never been about making food in the united states um it has always been about like how do we get land into white hands and then play land speculator with it and that's that's still how it works so if you've ever wondered why it is that like for 30 plus years we've had this food movement being like we need to go local we need to have healthier food yeah and nothing seems to have happened that's why it's because nobody just about nobody in agriculture like actually gives a fuck what customers want that's not their business it's it has nothing to do with us really um and just like you know, in, in white nationalist religion, there's a lot of pressure to make excuses, right? So the big one in agriculture is blaming it all on agribusiness. Like it's, it's none of this is our fault. It's all the big what bad. What do you like, mean? Like in yeah. what way? Well, like small family farms are good and all the bad stuff comes from an agribusiness takeover. From big ones, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Total bullshit. <laughs> Ooh, tell me more. <laughs> um, so 95% of American farms are family owned and it's so when you sell it, when you say that to people, so we're going to take you through the excuse process, right? Because breaking down excuses and kind of going through the permission structures that people are using to believe stupid things is really important, right? And it's also um, extremely your shit. Yeah. <laughs> so I started Which looking I at statistics you. and I was like, oh my God, this is nothing like what people say. So I, I first started kind of getting the vibe that something was off. There's, there was PR and then there was reality. So I'm going around all these different farms doing like food safety audits, which is like a whole thing we can explain. But just for the purposes of today, I was going to one to two farms a day and just like really looking under the hood of the farm. Um, and you got to make a lot of small talk. Like you have to build rapport with people, you know, before sure. you're like, your baby's ugly. <laughs> And just like, so, so here's what we want to look at, you know, like in the future. And um, so one of the things people would always say was like, wow, I bet you don't see a lot of little farms like ours. And I was like, small family farms are the vast majority of our clients because they're the vast majority of farms. Like 95% right. of the farms in the United States are family owned. Um, and most of them are not large. They're small and medium. And, well, uh, how would you define small or medium? Well, the USDA context? defines it. Um, I would have to look it up, but there's like income caps and it's, it's okay. a larger number than you would think. Like, um, cause like farms are capital intensive enterprises. So I think the medium cutoff yes. is like three and a half million dollars gross sales per year. And the actual income you can make from that is quite small depending on how you do it. Yeah, no. Okay. So like just for some perspective, I started a mask business like in April as of the pandemic. I hope like, people I, see the video of this like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm mind blown. What? Yeah. No, no. I, okay. So for perspective on like what that means in terms of a business, I'm a small business owner myself. Um, I started a mask business from scratch in April. Since then, I have sold $100,000 worth of masks. Like, you can make a lot of sales pretty quickly as long as, like, you have somewhere to sell it, right? Um, so it sounds like a really big, like, I'm literally a one-person shop with, like, a few contract sewers and one lady who does shipping. We sold it $100,000 worth of masks. Um, the, the profit margin, you know, like, obviously, I don't, I don't keep the vast majority of that. Like, you have right. to pay your sewers. You have to pay for the fabric. You know, you have to pay for shipping, right? Um, so, like... 
Yeah. Um, you can get huge numbers pretty quickly if you have any kind of appreciable acreage. Like for example, corn, um, you can grow maybe 200 bushels an acre is kind of like a standard yield now. It sells for, let's go on the low end, $4 a bushel. I mean, that's $800 an acre. If you have a 200 acre farm, which is like the average size, hang on. So, yeah. I mean, that's $160,000 for like minimum effort, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and it's, it's not really going to pay the bill so well because, and we'll get into why prices are so low. It's not because of agribusiness. Um, but yeah, I mean, like just a standard 200, 200 acre corn and soybean farm, which everyone knows is too small to make a living on. It's still making like grossing $160,000, you know, with like minimal effort. Um, Cause like corn and soybeans, like you plant it and then you wait. And then you harvest it. Like there's just really not a lot. If it's to it. too small to make a living on, why is everybody growing it? Oh, that's a whole conversation. We'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> like the vast majority of farmers have a day, like something like ninety percent of farms. So ninety five percent of farms are family owned. Ninety percent of farmers have a day job, or their spouse does, and that's what they actually live on. And the farm is more like, you know, when you buy a house, it's not to make a profit on it day to day. It's a pocket for your wealth. Right. Family farms fill the same function. They're, they're investment properties really more than they are jobs. So <laughs> like that's how you should be thinking about farms when we talk about farm stats. Um, and an investment property, like as long as you're kind of breaking even on average, sure. you know, like over the years, right. you're doing great because the you're property itself- You're the equity of the ownership of the property. And that's the secret behind family farms. The real business model is land speculation. So like, and this kind of became clear to me and we'll, we'll get through it. But like, I kind of started to understand that the reason a lot of our clients weren't making a lot of money was because they weren't investing a lot of marketing. They were doing the bare minimum. Um, they're just like dump it out the back door to a broker. So the broker just finds buyers and then someone has to ship it and someone has to pack it. So you're paying all these people to do all this work. And then you're like, why am I not making any of the consumer dollar? Well, you're not doing any of the work, Carla. That's why, you know. <laughs> total name out of nowhere right but like um that was not them but i I actually like literally worked with a family farm they couldn't remember if they had six or seven thousand acres because they bought so many parcels here and there that they like like the math is hard um couldn't remember if they had six or seven thousand acres that's like 10 square miles that's egregious yeah um and they kept complaining that they weren't making any money because they're selling to a broker, so they're getting like the bargain basement price because they're letting someone else. To, like, if you have ten square, do miles all of land, the labor. Yeah, value yeah. is attached to labor where the yes. labor is done. Yes, yes. So they weren't <laughs> yes. doing like, like if you feel like as soon as you're done growing it, your job is over. You're like, well, money doesn't come from the land; it comes from people. If you want food, then land is fine. But if you want money, you have to serve people, right? But like to kind of take it back to numbers again, ninety-five percent of U.S. farms are family-owned. They are family farms. Um, 90% of them are supported by a day job and 68% of the, like our food supply comes from small and medium family sized farms. They are not marginalized. They are the bulk of the food supply. Again, 68% of the U S food supply comes from small and medium family owned farms. So when we're doing this thing about like, Oh, well, all the problems come from the corporations cause they actually grow all the food. That's total bullshit. And the statistics are right online. You can go look them up and nobody ever does because we just believe Yeah, it's total bullshit. So like, that's, that's the power of looking at statistics and the power of like, you know, again, like when something doesn't feel right, you know, cause I'm out there working with all these farmers, just like small family farm after small family farm going, wow, I bet I'm like the only one you ever saw. And it starts <laughs> to make you think like, maybe there's something going on here. And maybe they've really, bought their own bullshit in that sense, right? Yeah, like, like maybe they have also fallen prey to the marketing. 
<laughs> yeah, so exactly. Yeah. So like that's kind of a lot of what 4-H and FFA do is they market the whole idea of farming to the people in the community themselves. And so like, again, when I say things like it's all bullshit and it's a scam, I don't mean all the farmers are sitting in the back, like curling their mustaches, like, ah, right. we sure got them. Like in a way that's true. They're like all convinced that urbanites are out to scam them. And that's why it's okay to scam us back. Um, <laughs> so like in that sense, like, I'm like yeah, even though urbanites pride themselves mm-hmm. in their support of their CSA subscription or oh, yeah. the, I, it's I, a very, I am this urbanite, this is me, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a, very one way, and, yeah. <laughs> it's a very one way love affair. And like the people who, like the farmers who sell through CSAs and dark marketing, like the ones you actually see at the farmer's market yeah. tend to be less like this. That's why they're at the farmer's market. 2% of U.S. food is moving. Because they're through. doing the labor of selling their food to mm-hmm. the community. <laughs> yeah. And like you talk to most farmers and they're just like, ew, I don't want to talk to people like you. Like that defeats the purpose of farming, which is to like hide out of my estate, never go anywhere. Except I also had to have my day job because like ugh, necessities. Um, but like that's very much the mindset is like I'm here so I don't have to talk to people. Um, and that attitude is very much encouraged by, you know, like all these farm institutions. And it's like, so here's the thing, like, and this is usually where the conversation stops. It's like, oh, well, people are trained to feel that way. So that's just how it is. And I'm like, bullshit, I left a cult. What's wrong with you? <laughs> but like, <laughs> okay, okay. I saw, I saw a lot of like wealthier white women waiting to be rescued. And they're just like, if I just keep doing the right thing and keep being nice and like keep selling my children short. And like, again, so like domestic violence is a very difficult topic to talk about. Like, yeah, there are a lot of women who are yeah. like, cannot support themselves financially. Like they literally cannot get out. There's also a lot of women who can get themselves out yeah. and don't. Okay. And when, like, especially when it comes to white women who are in these situations because they wanted proximity to property. Okay. Like you cannot talk about social control and domestic violence without having some real talk about white women and property. Okay. Um, and that's hard to do because the only acceptable narrative for white women in the United States is victimhood. Um, and we have yeah, a hard time right? talking From about time it. immemorial. Yeah. And we have a hard time talking about enabling and complicity and like, it sucks. Like these people are also victims and they're also adults with agency and it's been 40 years since women couldn't open their own bank accounts. Okay. Um, like it's been a while. Um, and you know, this is speaking as someone who grew up, kind of being raised by these women who were complicit in this culture of domestic violence. It's one thing to kind of be a victim in your own house. It's another thing to groom the young women in your community to expect the same thing and to, to just be prepared for it and accept it. Yeah. Yeah. And to shit talk other women who left because they're mean and they're bad and they're feminists and there's just bad people who don't care about families. Like there is active work by a lot of women to destroy other women's ability to get out of these manipulative relationships. Like, conservative white women sabotage each other and that's why these communities work the way they do and you have to be frank about that like i'm sorry but if you're the only way you can talk about white women is victimhood you are never going to figure out the extent of this domestic violence um it sucks and it's true um but like i see a lot of parallels between that behavior and like farmers in general and it's funny because agriculture is so full of like this macho cosplay um like like big tractors like You'll see farmers all the time. It's such a cosplay. Yeah. Yeah. You'll see farmers all the time, like buy more equipment than they need. Like that's way bigger than they could possibly need. Just like a six figure tractor. Yeah. Cause it's fun to drive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tractors like started a hundred thousand, <laughs> like for the tiny ones and they go up to half a million easily or like combines. Right. Um, so, <laughs> so like, um, so there's like a lot of macho role play. Like that's really what, again, 90% of family farmers rely on an outside job. To put it another way, 90% of farmers doing it as a hobby, 
like their day job supports them and farming is a thing they do on the, on the afternoons and weekends or evenings and weekends. Put another way, 90% of farmers are happy to farm at or below the cost of production because they like it. Put it another way, 90% of farmers are scabs. Okay, that's why none of them are making any money. It's not agribusiness. It was like that way before agribusiness. So to loop it back to this, like... My face, I know, I'm just like... Yeah. So to, to, to loop it back to, like, this cultural role play and how people can be complicit in, you know, not just, like, their own oppression, but also, like, the co-oppression of other people. Um, so, like... <laughs> For white women within Mormonism, there's like a ton of just like gender role play. And if I'm just like good enough and virtuous enough and like fit enough that like angelic ideal of white womanhood, someone is going to come rescue me. Like that's what I've been told. Like all of our media is about like frail white women getting rescued from a horrible situation, right? Like we're kind of like subliminally told over and over again that this is a real thing that happens and it doesn't. Yeah. Um, like you kind of have to make your own luck when it comes to... <laughs> And like you have to help each other and like commun like community wise make your own luck, right? Um, it sucks, but it's true. Like I would love to live in a culture and a community that actually like where you have forces that will hold people who are abusive accountable, and that's was just not the reality that I was living in. Um, and I see the same thing in agriculture. You have a lot of farmers who are just kind of like, well. I'm stuck in the situation that's not great, um, but I'm like the crab bucketing that happens in agriculture is intense. You know, like farmers are constantly like if somebody makes an effort to sell directly to customers because they're going to make more money, improve their business model. Like that's basic business 101. The other guys shit talk them. They're like, you're crazy for farming that way. Um, there's active attempts to like keep each other down. And they're all like, how did farmers market even happen? Uh, like when I hear this talk, I'm just like, how did the, how did we ever even get to a point? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, hell of a drug. Well, like that's the mentality. Yeah. It's like the whole point of like when we talk about the settler like independent homestead ideal. Um, I think if we stop saying independent and just said like uh, everybody else can fuck off, I have no obligations to anybody. Like that's kind of what that means. And so that's the mindset that still dominates is like, I have my land, therefore I shouldn't have to please anyone. Like relationships no longer. But what matter. if we thought about food to actually feed people? Like if, what if that was the actual purpose of farming? That would destroy the U.S. food economy. <laughs> like that would destroy like the value of farmland. It would like wreck farming as we know it, which is why I think we should do it. Farming as we know it is bad. Yeah. Right? I'm like, let's um, blow it up. No. <laughs> yeah, but like there's a, there's a lot of like gender roles and like social roles cosplay going on in agriculture where people like actively ignore like all the obvious stuff they should be doing with their business model and just like I'm just keep being the independent ideal American just farmer. Feel I keep good. Cos yeah, I just keep cosplaying these gender roles and like these rural roles that I've been taught are the thing. And someday if I'm good enough at it, someone is going to come rescue me. It's the same exact mindset. Like it's so weird to kind of spend your life punching your way out of like this this mindset and then just see it somewhere else like but it's dudes pretending to be super macho so someone will come rescue them it's so weird which is um, so ironic right mm -hmm. like this thought of like oh maybe someone will come rescue me it's just it's mind-blowing to me that an entire industry can operate with that as the foundation, with that as the premise, like these are the same, these are the same folks who are generally like, um, raging capitalists mm -hmm. in name, right. Who are generally like libertarian. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of libertarian influence in rural communities. Mm -hmm. We see, um, and this is, uh, we've talked about this some before, but <laughs> this is the same way that the left writes off 
um, rural communities as like, oh, we, there's no way that we're ever, they're just, they're backwards. They're mm-hmm. just crazy or they're just mm-hmm. ignorant. Oh, no, they're not they're backwards. Just, they're extremely it's advanced. Like it's, it's full, yeah. full on capitalism. That's what we're looking at. And I just did a big old Twitter thread about this, but like the, the rural urban divide is fake. Okay. They're both run by capitalism. Um, the only difference, the way I see it, is like rural areas effectively have one party control where there is no political opposition to what the property owning class wants because um, the reason that farm countries depopulated is like not because people left the city like to the cities to get fancy jobs it's because tenant farming used to be normal everywhere it was not just a southern thing the south picked it up after slavery because that's what the north was already doing uh, they already perfected the business model and South is like, sure, we can do that now too. Um, like that was kind of the norm across the board in the United States, the West Coast as well. Um, so that's why there used to be lots of people in the countryside. It took manual labor. And so we had farm workers doing that. And like, if you look at the statistics, like it actually divides out people who own land versus people who like live there and worked there, but didn't own anything, didn't inherit anything. They weren't really part of the farming class. They just worked there. It's kind of like the difference between someone who owns a McDonald's franchise versus the people who own McDonald's versus like the people who flip the burgers, right? Technically, they all work at McDonald's. Um, you could say they're all fast food workers, but some of them are more workers than others, right? Right. Um, and I, I feel like in some ways that obscurement is deliberate. So if you look at there's kind of this classic graph of like, this is how many farmers there used to be. And then it like just boom. the vast majority of that is not white landowning farmers leaving. It is black landowning farmers and it is tenant farmers of all races being purged from the countryside. That's Jim Crow, right? Um, Yeah. And so like, that's the real story of like mechanization and people leaving the countryside. Like it was largely not by choice. It was people fleeing for their lives from Jim Crow. It was economic refugees, like leaving the South, like white folks, because there weren't, there was no work because the whole place was run by these kingpins who were just like, like, (laughs) it's um, like a return to serfdom basically. Like, yeah, it's yeah, it's wild because feudal lords who have their big plots of land and yeah, control okay, everything yeah. in so their like, dominion. <laughs> the idea that like Western society like converted from feudalism to capitalism is like hilarious to me because you're like they're not different. It's just property owners lording it out over everybody. Yeah, and there's like some differences in how that's executed, but really they're the same thing, right? And so when I talk about how agriculture works, everybody's like, oh, it's a return to feudalism, like. No, we never no, left it. It's, yeah. No, they're just not different. Like, I yeah. think the idea that feudalism and capitalism... <laughs> just the same. Yeah, the idea that there's feudalism and then there's capitalism and they're like two totally different ways of living, they're, they're not. Like, I, I think that's like 19th century Europe getting really excited about the idea that it was changing and it wasn't. Um, <laughs> let's not get too excited about that, like, transition. Nothing changed. Um, and so, like... That's why rural areas got depopulated. It wasn't because family farmers were forced to compete with each other. It's because landlords bought tractors and like replaced their workers with machines. Okay. It's the same reason as inner city decay. Um, and again, when you actually look right. at the statistics, it's, it's very clear. Um, cause so like, when are you going to run for office? Uh, I don't think that's a great <laughs> idea. Like to like, honestly, like I'm, I'm involved politically. Um, when we're looking for people to run for office, you want folks who were like, can can negotiate and compromise and i just kind of like my whole life experience has been like that's pointless um <laughs> so there's there's a role like there's there's things you can do that aren't running for office um like you need to have voting blocks that are actually like accountable to people um like that's the thing that i see in the south as a big need is like um like rural areas like again they've been deliberately depopulated right um sure 
to that's why gerrymandering works the way it does that's why a lot of the south is kind of like artificially engineered to be as red as it is if you want to do anything about that long term you have to build livelihoods in rural areas you have to like actually build like and when you say build infrastructure what people hear is like oh so like get the government to do it i'm like it won't ever do it because it's gerrymandered red like you can't start from government work right um I have great hope for multiracial democracy. That is like my end goal. But you have to understand that when you're starting with a gerrymandered like feudal system, like there's some intervening steps that you got to do to get there, right? Um, To me, a big intervening step is like just build some functional food systems. Like stop doing this small family farm thing because like the math wise, they just don't work great. Um, What does a functional food system look like in that capacity? Worker owned and big, you know? Yeah, so like shit out of all of it. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, there came a point when I was like, wait, like family-owned farms are just like a nice way to say like, yes, the land is hereditarily in white hands. Like, (laughs) that's all that means. Um, Small family, Sarah. (laughs) Small family farms. No, that's yeah. Yeah, like we're told that they're the ultimate, right? Because we live in a country that exists to like take over land and give it to white people. Like that's why we think small family farms are good. It's so sad, right? Like that's why we think they're good. It's not because they're an effective way to make food because they're not. It's not because they're an effective way to support people's livelihoods. They're not. It's not because they're good for the environment. They're not. Okay, they're not good at any of those things. Like as far as like an operational model, um, it takes a lot of people to farm properly. And I don't even mean the labor. Like that's what people hear is they're like, oh yeah, like manual labor, eat your hands in the dirt. That's not even what I'm talking about. Like it's bandwidth. Um, Farming is complex. It is a real job. It's hard. And then, you know, turning that into usable products is complex. It takes a lot of bandwidth. It's hard. And then selling it is complex. It takes a lot of bandwidth. It's hard. There's so many moving parts. There's so much like stuff to do. And so like the idea that a nuclear family of like five to maybe like 10 people is the ideal model for it. Like, where the fuck did you get that idea? Like, no. Right. Right. (laughs) Too much. Cosplay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just even like in terms of bandwidth, it's too much for that many people to do. And like most of your family farms at this point, you know, it's like maybe one to two people, it's mom and pop, and then maybe one or two kids. Um, like most of the farms have like one operator, like that's the one person doing the farming, you know, and then other people in the family will like do chores as asked, but they're not like taking leadership roles and actually adopting any of that bandwidth, right? It's all like one person in their head. Um, and, and that's why food safety audits are so unpopular is because it forces the one person running the place or two, if you're lucky to get all that information out of their head and actually write it down and communicate it properly. And they're really resistant to that because they're like, I've never had to do this before. Well, what does that tell you? One person is doing all the bandwidth, which like really limits how much an operation can actually do. Right. Um, so like a brief example of that, cause this is really absurd. Or how effectively even one person can't. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's where a lot of the bad farming comes from. Like, it's not because agribusiness force people to do that. It's because if you're already operating with that much of a skeleton crew, then you're going to op- adopt these practices as they're offered because you have a skeleton crew, you know, like family farming has its own demise, like built right into it. It's so fucking crazy. Um, <laughs> so like, what do we do? Do we start oh. convincing family farms to like, okay, now we need to get, not that, not that it's possible. Like you said, like I, I, I look, I already just ended my home. I'm like, okay, <laughs> is it the same? Like I, in my um, daytime life, I'm a consultant in economic development. Right. Great. And so I teach 
encourage uh, cities, municipal governments, and small businesses to build their capacity by embracing their values. And I say that with like a hint of self-aware like deprecation because mm -hmm. it sounds so impossible, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but part of that, even just like when we talk about equity, is land transfer. So like I do a lot of education around, okay, you said this, these are your values. Here's what that actually looks like. Mm -hmm. are, are you sure those are your values? Because mm -hmm. this is what that it actually looks like. Mm -hmm. How do we get land mm -hmm. from here in this ownership mm -hmm. to here mm -hmm. in this ownership, mm -hmm. right? Like whether that's publicly owned land from mm -hmm. private hands mm -hmm. or whether that's um, out of the hands of rich white folks who've had it in their family for a thousand years mm -hmm. into the hands of people who have been disenfranchised for the thousand years to enable mm -hmm. that to happen, right? Right. But it's on a much smaller scale than what we're talking about for food systems. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So like, let me give you an example. Cause like that bandwidth example is like really abstract. Let me give you like a concrete. So there was a time when I was working in the Pacific Northwest and uh, doing way too many odds per day. It was like, got to a point, like at the end of the week, you're like hallucinating with like lack of sleep um, <laughs> because that's a seasonal job and you have to like wham out as many as you can while harvest season is happening. Cause that's when you have to like, look at how the harvest process works. Right. Um, so we're doing like audits orchard. Required. Huh? Are audits required? Yeah. So if you want to sell to a grocery store or like basically anything besides farmer's market. So like if you're growing for farmer's market, like nobody really cares how you do it. Um, but grocery stores are like, listen, if we're going to buy your stuff, like we don't want to buy an outbreak. Right. So like, please demonstrate that you're, you have hand washing and toilets available at your farm, like that kind of thing. Sure. Um, <laughs> Bare minimum. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. Cause a lot of it's like kind of basic and people are like, that's too much. And you're like having a bathroom <laughs> is too much. Okay. Um, so like, so we're going around to like all these small family farms, like small and medium farms, because that's the, where the bulk of the food is coming from, right? That's the bulk of our clients. Um, you know, it's kind of a more arid area, not a lot of rainfall. And so one of the questions on the audit, because this particular one that people asked to be audited with has, in addition to the food safety, there's some worker safety and then some environmental health standards as well. So one of the questions was, do we have pollinator habitat on the farm? And like having good pollinator habitat makes you so much money because you don't have to buy as many beehives. Like it saves you money. Like it is profitable in and of itself. It shouldn't have to be an item on an audit. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's the thing about a lot of conservation practices, like cover crops, pollinator habitat, like they actually make you money like pretty quickly. And so it's wild to me that people like don't want to do it, which is again, where I started getting that. I think this is cosplay. Like nobody's trying to make money because if they were right, trying, like, yeah, yeah. If they were actually chasing profit, they would be doing a lot more conservation. And it's so like, one. yeah. So one of the things on the audit, like, because it's environmental and health standards, like is, do you have pollinator habitat, like on your farm? And so all these small and family farms are like, oh yeah, there's like this hillside that has a lot of brush on it that's like too steep to drive a tractor on so we don't mow it that's our pollinator habitat and like it's a, it's an arid area so like stuff grows in spring it blooms and then it dies right so you have this hillside full of dry scrub and that are like well that might help with like your spring pollinators you're an orchard okay that might help but like if you're trying to get strong populations like a lot of them that help you in spring actually need food all summer long you know so like maybe it should be irrigated. Like it should be somewhere in your farm that's hooked into the irrigation system and nobody would do that. 
um, until. So I go to this one farm. Uh, it was the Yakima Nations farm. And again, like super overworked. I was like hallucinating that day. They did not get a great customer service experience. So if anybody's listening, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but like, so they had pollinator habitat in the orchard hooked up to the irrigation system. And it was like lush in August or July or like whenever, like it was no longer like the nice spring season. It was like dry. Everything is crinkling season. And they had pollinator habitat that actually worked. And like, it doesn't just host pollinators. It hosts like beneficial insects that like prey on your orchard pests. And so they were actually getting value out of it. They were making money off of it. Right. And so that was really like a slap in the face to me. Right. Because we're always told like, Oh, you know, family farms are like ideal. All these family farms, like just the bare basics of running an orchard for a, a family skeleton crew is already all the bandwidth you can handle. If there's anything that's going to fall off the wagon, you know, like go through the cracks, it's like the environmental practices that you can't directly pencil in. You know, like if you're looking at a spreadsheet, you know, it's like labor costs, fertilizer costs, irrigation costs. Like if it's not one of those direct things that like you have, like absolutely have to do to get the crop out the door, that's what's going to fall off the table. So pollinator sure. habitat, even though it makes you money, is the first thing to go off the table because it's not a direct mandatory cost. If you have to cut corners, that's a corner. And it was like the Yakima Nation, <laughs> like running this orchard. And I think like a lot of people's knee-jerk instinct would just be like, well, it's because they like feel the earth better or some nonsense like that, right? But that's really kind of papering over the fact that it takes, like it's still work for anybody to do this. Like it's, it doesn't come out of feeling different. It comes out of actually having a human structure capable of doing that work, capable of keeping track sure. of those things. Like let's not erase the work that people are putting in. Um, I was like, oh, that's because they have a bigger community to draw from. Like, they're actually hiring people. Like, they're like it's supposed to be there to support the tribe financially. Like, they're actually kind of running it like a business, and that's why it's more sustainable. And they actually, because they're trading it professionally, like, are investing what it needs in terms of people to get the job done, which right. is just not how family farms roll. Like, the purpose of family farms is very different. It's just a wealth pocket for the family, and farming is what you do to collect a tax break on your investment property. Um, Golly. <laughs> so like, you know, the accommodations job, like the way I think they're thinking of land ownership is like, this is where we live. Like, this is our land. This is, you know, like we don't have plans to sell it and move on. Like <laughs> this is our place. Whereas right. like, it doesn't matter how much like a settler family talks about how they're attached to the lands. Like a, it's, it's like a house. A lot of us were very attached to our childhood home, but there's a lot to it. But at the end of the day, it's still a financial asset that acts as a golden parachute if you need it. Like bottom line, that is what it is. Right. Um, and so to me, like, if you're going to talk about like connection to the earth and a land ethic, like you should not be fooling around with these settler farmers. Like you need to go straight to the source. Um, like talk to indigenous farms. Like they're the ones who actually have the incentive structure to stay put on their land and take care of it. Um, and like, you know, hashtag land back, um, <laughs> you know, and then just like organizationally, like they're not trying to use the land as a wealth pocket for individual families. They're actually trying to make food um, because their goal is to live there and support themselves. The regenerative movement is super whitewashed. It's like a bunch of white gurus being like, I'm reawakening indigenous techniques. And I'm like, you realize they're not extinct. It's not like, a reawakening. Yeah, they're like right yeah, there. Yeah, like they're they're already right doing it. There. Why do we need you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like right. It's like right, right over there. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Has so there been any work done around, um, well, particularly the disenfranchisement in the Jim Crow era of black farmers? Yeah, right. So like, has there been yeah. any work done around what reparations would look like in that context? 
Uh, yeah. So there, I mean, there's a lot of people talking about it, but like, I just don't have any optimism and like it happening because of like yeah. the way our political structure works right now. Like, again, the whole point of the United States was to get land and put it into white hands. There's a lot of things that have to happen <laughs> to make that happen. Right? <laughs> so, I'll like, just look off my face. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, you're like, yeah. So like, that's why I'm working with, you know, like, I don't have a poker face. No worries. Yeah. So I'm working with some black farmers who are like, you know, like I do food safety stuff. And so I do food safety consulting as well. And I finally started raising some money on Patreon so I can like just do work when they need it. Not when their funding comes in. Like you shouldn't be like, I'm here to help you. I need crazy money, please. Um, <laughs> so like just in terms of like, so I'm working with some black farms. Um, so there's the provost in Louisiana. There's uh, Chris Newman at Sylvan Aqua in Virginia and like he, he's really interesting because like he's he's black and he's also um enrolled in the Choptico band of the Piscataway tribe in Maryland um so he's like drawing on a lot there right um yeah so he's got some really cool like land sovereignty stuff going on like he's starting up a land trust that's really cool to see and then the provosts are doing a lot of that in Louisiana as well um and they're they're working in very different political contexts. So like Chris is in Maryland and Virginia, which are kind of more blue slash purple states. Mm-hmm. And then the provosts are in Louisiana, which is like raging red. And that's, that's kind of a conversation that you'll see happening a lot is like, well, if we have land justice, you know, and if, if it's harder to like, if we have more estate taxes, basically is how this conversation often happens. Sure. If we have more estate taxes, then we'll be forced to sell the family land. And then like, then my kids won't be able to farm. And I'm like, well, it'll be easier for everyone to buy farmland, including your kid. And if you think that they wouldn't be able to compete for land on an open market, what are you telling us about your child and the validity of your like hereditary situation and plans, you know? <laughs> yeah. Also, or the validity of the system either yeah. way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, so deep down, you know, this is broken and it keeps incompetent people on the land. That's, that's what I'm hearing here. Right. And that's, again, that's a skill that I picked up punching my way out of a cult. There's a lot of things that people kind of deep down, they know, and they say them in a roundabout way. And if you let them keep talking long enough, they'll tell you exactly what their plans are and, and how they think things work. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just like, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of anxieties like in the white community about like, well, if other people are empowered and like even folks who consider themselves leftists, um, if we, if we let other people be empowered, then, then what's going to happen to us? And I'm like, so, so what you're saying is there is such yeah. a thing as second class citizenship status in the United States and you know exactly how bad it is. You're, yeah, you're acknowledging. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. It's just like, you know, make yourself useful. Well, like don't be an asshole and have some skills. Like no one's going to say no to that. Come on. <laughs> Can I please use that as the quote for this episode? Sure. Make yourself useful. Don't be an asshole. Have some skills. Yeah. Well, this so has bad. been just like, this has been so wonderful. I have enjoyed every minute of it. Like, it's hard for me to just, like, I'm sitting here in rapt attention. Just like, yes. Because I think, well, I think that we've covered some things that, A, people don't normally make the connections between, right? B, even if they do sort of kind of get it, they don't interrogate it to the extent that we have on this conversation, right, that you have through your work. Um, And C, I know that, at least I'll speak from my own experience, there's a a tendency to be a little cynical whenever we start to uncover the ugliness, right, between. But um, I don't see it that way on, on this issue. I really don't like, I see it as an opportunity and I see it as connected to everything else that, 
that we're currently doing to reestablish equity, even if it means moving resources from this group of people to that group of people or from private hands into public hands. Like to me, this is part of like a broader context and effort um, mm -hmm. that has to happen. Like it right. absolutely has to happen. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate your time today because I think it was a, a very valid and important conversation that had to be had. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to the Community Values Podcast, and we're glad you're here. For more episodes, more information about our mutual aid efforts, or more information about our sponsor, Anthem LLC, you can find us online at communityvaluespod.org.